0: I'm Lara Norton and this is One Strange Thing. The show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. If we asked you to describe your dream house, what image would you conjure? Would it be a McMansion? straight from the depths of Zillow. Or Barbie's tricked-out pink abode with the branded elevator and the ever-ready jacuzzi. Or a white picket fence, a well-manicured lawn nestled against a brick home with the appropriate seasonal decor and plenty of signage to let everyone know when it's appropriate to live, laugh, and love. Or the kind of place you imagined as a child during those ill-fated games of M.A.S.H., which were always rigged, by the way, and we're suspicious of children who can fold paper so expertly, but when you were a normal child, the house you'd imagine was filled with all the things you hoped adulthood would bring. Giant TVs, endless cereal, the good kind with lots of sugar, a game room set up with Xboxes and Playstations, and not a grimy foosball table. A refrigerator, but the fancy kind, with an ice maker on the front. Endless beanbags. Tip-top luxury. Or maybe you were a little different. Maybe you climbed as high as you could into the tallest tree you could find and wondered about what it would be like to build a home in its branches. Maybe you thought about carving a place for yourself on a lonely mountaintop. Maybe you sat on the beach, building sandcastle after sandcastle and watching the tide come in to pull them away. Maybe you imagined a future when they could stay. There are some people who hold on to those notions. The eccentrics who seem to pop up, if not in most towns, at least in most states. Nearly every corner of the United States has a building that is the result of a dreamer's greatest dream, an imagination that refused to quit, an architectural love song to unbridled fancy. These folks happily tinker away at their little or not so little dream homes, building giant prairie chickens like in Oklahoma or a paper house in Massachusetts or even a replica of the Munster's Mansion in Texas. And there are the castles. Oh, there are plenty of those. Lots of regal fantasies from one coast to another. But there was one man, way back in 1929, who had a particular and specific desire. He wanted to construct a life-size sandcastle out in the Arizona desert. He didn't have any equipment to speak of, and he didn't have much money either. Or, as far as he knew, time. You see, this man, Boyce Lloyd Gully, a 47-year-old former shoe salesman, had recently received a diagnosis of tuberculosis, the consumption. And in 1929, that could still be a death sentence. And so, he reevaluated his life in the Pacific Northwest. The Southwestern climate could be good for his health, and more importantly, he was ready to take on his artistic dream. So he left his job and he set out to do what he'd always promised himself he would, build a castle, a sandcastle. He'd just have to figure out how once he got there. He took his time, but per the Miami Herald, he made it there in 1930. As it turns out, The first step of building a life-size sandcastle is to find land. Much of Boyce Gully's story is recorded in the pages of the Arizona Republic newspaper, across a dozen or more articles, though he springs up in other places from time to time. And the details of his life sometimes change. Once in a while, he's not a shoe salesman, but a wholesale buyer for a department store. Sometimes, he recovers from his tuberculosis during his stay in Arizona. Sometimes he doesn't. But what is always reported precisely the same are the details of the building he created. And it, strangers, would be a marvel. Per the Republic, the first thing Boyce did was buy a copper and gold mine up against the side of South Mountain. Back then, the spot was quite rural. Nowadays, the city of Phoenix has spread its, forgive us, wings further and further, and now that lonely copper and gold mine? It's in the middle of an urban center. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. According to the Arizona Republic, Boy Scully wasn't entirely unprepared to realize his dream. No, he wasn't rich or a gifted builder. but. He'd had two years of training in architecture in college. And, as you'll soon see, he certainly had a knack for repurposing other people's trash. But most importantly, he had a vision, a sandcastle he'd built on the beach a year before. One he'd hated to see wash away. He was determined to recreate it, but bigger and better. If, that is, the tuberculosis would allow, We don't know much about Boyce's health in those early days. Per KSL News, he settled in on his 40 acres of mine claim and lived out of an old railroad car. And he managed to find a mule, too. The mule was handy for his walks about the desert. That's when he'd pick up this bit of glass or that discarded wagon wheel. Per the Arizona Republic, Boyce was at least healthy enough to work in town sporadically. After all he needed money for sandcastle supplies. Between the meager return of the mines, his side work, and whatever money he'd brought from the Northwest, Boyce had enough to hire help. He employed just one person. According to the Arizona Republic, they found a local stonemason willing to help with his project. And what a project it would be. The Miami Herald points out that in more modern times, what Boyce dreamed up might be called organic architecture, working around the environment and with it. The eventual structure would be an impressive 8,000 square feet, per the Houston Chronicle, but after all, a castle should impress. And we're pretty certain that less-inspired builders in 1930 would have looked askance at Boyce's methods. According to the Arizona Republic, he made his mortar out of, quote, caliche, cement, water and goat's milk. But those doubting builders, they would have been wrong, because that was a time-tested recipe in the Southwest. Caliche is a type of sedimentary rock made up of calcium carbonate. It's one of nature's natural cements. And goat's milk. The Houston Chronicle reported that Boyce learned that extremely effective technique from quote, local Native Americans. But it doesn't get more specific than that. And the best part, this method gave Boyce an excuse to have goats, and we support that. Armed with his goats, and his mortar, and his mule, and his plans, Boyce set out to craft his castle, not despite the desert, but with it. More than 50 years later, articles in the Arizona Republic and the Miami Herald would marvel over Boyce Gully's knack for recycling and reflecting the natural landscape. As Boyce gathered the materials for what would eventually become an 18-room structure, he'd often gaze out into the desert. We don't know what he imagined when he spotted what the Republic described as a lightning-struck saguaro cactus, but inspiration struck along with it. Most men would have simply chopped down and thrown out the hulking vegetal skeleton, but Boyce Gully, he designed a room around it In fact, per the Herald, he actually used smaller pieces of the suero cactus to make complimentary furniture. The Miami Herald noted that Boyce eventually decided on 13 Pueblo-style kiva, or honeycomb fireplaces, and an underground saloon, replete with glass-block skylights and a chapel. He even had beds on rollers and, according to the Republic, a freestanding outdoor spiral staircase and the recycling continued. The paper-sided wagon wheels turned into windows, that old railroad car repurposed as a ceiling, bits of glass and broken brick painstakingly collected and fused to make walking paths and walls. As the Houston Chronicle described it, the castle would eventually be, quote, a mind-boggling hodgepodge of arches, parapets, bell towers, columns, sun decks, stairways, and trap doors. Don't get too excited though. There was not a single bathroom and no running water and no electricity, not that far out, miles from what was then downtown Phoenix. Per the Arizona Republic, Boyce made do by carrying water back and forth every day, living in darkness and building by sunlight. He made himself comfortable in his patchwork desert palace. In fact, he worked on it, as far as we know, every day for 15 years. Maybe Boy Scully would have worked on his dream home forever, the castle twisting crookedly up into the Arizona sky, overlooking a city that would sprawl itself out until it brought him all the amenities that he lacked. But it was not to be, because in 1945, Boy Scully, the visionary, the castle builder, died. Sources disagree on the precise cause. Some say cancer, some say cancer and tuberculosis, that he never actually recovered from the original illness. Others list tuberculosis as the only cause, but those seem to be incorrect, as at least two articles note that he left behind unpaid bills for cancer treatment. But he also left behind a legacy, a gorgeous, bizarre, utterly unique monument to the power of human imagination. Boyce had done it, what so few before him had. He had seen his vision, and he had made it so. And that would be the end of his story. A remarkable story, surely, except for one strange thing. Boy Scully had left behind more than the rain and the trees of Washington state. And he didn't spend 15 years isolated in the desert, building his own dream house, actually, he'd been building his daughters. That daughter, Mary Lou Gully, had been left behind with her mother in the Pacific Northwest, abandoned or so it seemed to them. And for reasons he never fully explained, she never knew her father was constructing his princess a castle until after he was gone. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to be attacked by an alligator? Or what goes through one's mind as they're stranded in a snowstorm? What Was That Like is the podcast for you. Real people come on every episode to explain the unbelievable situations they've been through. Guests share how they really felt during their most surreal experiences. They tell us what they did the morning before an earthquake, how it feels to win The Price is Right, and all sorts of details that you'd never learn anywhere else. If you're interested in hearing disturbing and inspiring firsthand stories, What Was That Like is the podcast you've been looking for. Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know that even the most unrealistic are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like wherever you get your podcasts. Mary Lou Gully was born in 1923. Her father was said to have begun his work in 1930, or maybe 1929. So she was at least six or seven when he left. She was certainly old enough to remember him and his explanation for his absence. She later told the Arizona Republic, he said he wanted to pursue his dream of being an artist. It broke my heart that he left us. And happier times? He'd read Mary Lou, Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales at night. And, according to the castle's official website, he'd built her many sandcastles on the beach. And according to that website, those memories had stayed with Boyce too. Quote, In his heart was permanently etched the vision of those precious moments when he and his little girl, Mary Lou, built sandcastles on the beach in Seattle. How she would cry when the tide washed them away. Please, Daddy, build me a big and strong castle someday I can live in. Maybe you ought to build it in the desert, where there is no water." And so, when he left his wife and daughter, well, that's what he did. Except he didn't tell them. Not precisely. The Arizona Republic's own archives are in conflict on this point. Some say he never told them what he was up to, besides, well, being an artist. Somewhere else. A 1984 retrospective, though, notes that he had written sporadically about building a house and that Mary Lou had asked to visit him after her high school graduation, but that her father had said his modest little shack wouldn't be fit for a young lady. It didn't have facilities, after all. He failed to mention the turrets and trapdoors. In fact, it wasn't until the posthumous telegram arrived that Mary Lou knew the truth. According to the official website, her father's relatives arranged to have his final words sent. And they were, we imagine, quite a shock because she'd had no idea, after all, why he'd really left. Dearest Mary Lou, can you forgive me? It wasn't art I wanted, it was you. I left home not because I wanted freedom, but because I had tuberculosis. Mary Lou told the Arizona Republic in 1984 that back in the 20s, a TB patient would have been forced into a sanitarium, which is why her father fled. But it doesn't explain why he didn't tell his family the truth. Maybe he thought it was kinder for them to believe he'd abandoned them for art. In fairness, It's hard to guess at the intentions of a man who'd spent 15 years building a castle and kept it a secret. Soon, Mary Lou and her mother received more information. The home her father had been building? It was theirs now, all the way in Arizona. According to the Arizona Republic, Mary Lou wasn't keen to head off to the Southwest. After all, she didn't know a castle was waiting for her, but her mother, for whatever reason, was determined. Maybe she wanted to see just what her husband had been up to for the last 15 years. Those years couldn't have been easy ones for her, and the first discovery on their arrival to Phoenix was unpleasant. Those medical bills we mentioned, they were still unpaid, and now the Gully women were responsible for them. Problem was, they were absolutely broke. And when they made it to the castle, Well, it was impressive from the outside, certainly. But it sat in, well, a desert. At best, a radical shift from their home in the Pacific Northwest. And on the inside of their new desert palace, quote, cobwebs, scorpions, rodents, and an unwashed caretaker named Charlie. Yeah, we don't know where he came from either, but that's a great detail. Soon, though, the details of Boy Scully's legacy would become clear. According to his will, if Mary Lou and her mother would live in the castle for two years or so until January 1st, 1948, Mary Lou would receive her full inheritance. Whatever that might be. Of course, the castle was part of that and she would be expected to work on it, to improve it. She'd have to, as it was filthy, and there was no water, and only what was described as a shocking pink outhouse for a bathroom. But there was more. Per the Republic, if Mary Lou could stick it out, she would be allowed to open a special trap door, and she would receive whatever was hidden behind it. But again, they would have to live there for two years and, according to the Republic, haul their own water, live without electricity, use the outhouse, and maintain the castle, and of course, figure out how to feed themselves. On the other hand, what else could they do? They'd picked up and left Washington for Mary Lou's inheritance, and her father had built her a castle. He hadn't left them after all, not exactly. Still, it would be a long two years and the gullies worked hard. Per the Republic, Mary Lou spent her free time reading the journals her father had left behind, learning how he'd put together some of the wonders around her, designed so fantastic that Frank Lloyd Wright would one day become an admirer. We imagine she studied the design of each ingenious item, the shovels repurposed into lanterns, the bar saloon fashioned from the remains of a wagon, In the chapel, her father had somehow managed to stow away a pump organ that, per the Houston Chronicle, once belonged to the black widow heiress of a chocolate fortune. We are not kidding. As Mary Lou would later tell a reporter, she supposedly killed six husbands with her chocolate cake. I've got the recipe. And according to KSL News, there were other surprises. Mary Lou once pried back a flagstone and found a hidden store of coins. And, quote, in other hidden spots, she found necklaces, cash, gold nuggets, gems, and personal notes from her father. And that was lucky. Mary Lou and her mother could barely keep up with the demands of the castle, and their financial situation, it was dire. But, luckily, Mrs. Frances Gully had a fair amount of spunk, which perhaps is a given considering what she put up with and her willingness to move across the country. But on the advice of a friend, she decided to seek press coverage. After all, the day to open the trapdoor was soon approaching. What if they could use what was sure to be a spectacle to make the castle famous? Per the Arizona Republic, They approached Life Magazine, who weren't all that interested until they mentioned that hidden treasure behind the trapdoor. Then, they were more than willing to arrange for a reporter and a camera crew to show up at the appointed date. The gullies were flat broke. Still, they managed to arrange a New Year's Eve party. After all, they needed to put on a show for the magazine. But also... They'd waited a long time. A party seemed like the natural thing to do. Life magazine recorded the entire event with incredible drama. Mary Lou was posed at the trapdoor in silhouette. Mary Lou gasping at the entrance of the inner chamber. Mary Lou holding the objects her father had left her. And what were they? Some pieces of gold ore. A wallet with two $500 bills tucked into its fold. A Valentine she'd made for her father when she was a child. A picture of Boyce Gully, taken soon before he died. And two letters addressed to Mary Lou. The money was a boon to the Gully women, but the fame of the Life magazine spread, that was the real prize. The reporter had dubbed their home, the Mystery Castle. That's the name it still uses today. And that fame allowed them to open it up to the public and to tours. Thus, they could generate income and fix up their strange and wonderful home. And those letters, what did they say? Per life, Boyce wanted his daughter to know why he'd asked her to wait until 1948. He'd wanted her to have the chance to love the castle, to grow to love it, as he did, to see it as his gift to her. If she didn't, well, she could sell it, but he hoped she'd stay. And she did for the rest of her life. But that Life magazine spread and all the articles that follow, they never quite settle the real mystery of the castle. After all, perhaps we know why Boyce never sent for his family. He was afraid of infecting them. A cure for TB wouldn't be available until 1949. But why didn't he tell them what he was doing? Why did he consider it a kindness to let them think he'd abandoned them? And why not let the daughter, whom he loved enough to honor with a castle made by his own hands, know how much he thought of her while he could still say it, to tell her he was off building her dream. Mary Lou Gully, the princess on the mountain in Phoenix, made a life for herself and grew to know her own father. Through his letters, yes, and through the home he made for her. But mostly, she learned through her own construction project. One that lives solely in her imagination, where piece by piece she built the relationship with her father that they hadn't gotten to share in life. It's an experience that, we imagine, could only be born out of the perfect fusion of a feverish dream and a unique talent. The perfect present for the only lonely child of a man who knew he must leave her behind. As far as monuments to love go, well, Boy Scully's castle fulfills his promise. Nearly 80 years later, his devotion, placed stone by stone upon the sand, hasn't drifted away. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers. From the lives of regular people, just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers. One Strange Thing is an entirely independent production. To support our show and to hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, join us over on Patreon. There, you'll get ad-free releases of our regular episodes, full-length bonus episodes, and plenty of other fun content, all for $5 a month. We hope you'll check it out.